Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Foss Corporation, LLC. Welcome to the Mansion on the Hill. This is the home of Terry's serious moments, stories of oddness, of weirdness of nature gone strange. This is season four. We thank you for coming along for the ride. Hope you enjoy it. Good evening, everybody. This is Terry from Texas with another episode of Terry's Mysterious Moments. Gloria Ramirez was an American woman from Riverside, California, who was dubbed the toxic lady or the toxic woman by the media when several hospital workers became ill after exposure to her body and blood. She had been admitted to the emergency department while suffering from late-stage cervical cancer. While treating Ramirez, several hospital workers fainted and others experienced symptoms such as shortness of breath and muscle spasms. Five workers required hospitalization, one of whom remained in an intensive care unit for two weeks. Shortly after arriving at the hospital, Ramirez died from complications related to cancer. The incident was initially considered to be a case of mass hysteria and an investigation by Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory proposed that Ramirez had been self-administering dimethyl sulfoxide as a treatment for pain, which converted into dimethyl sulfate, an extremely poisonous and highly carcinogenic alkylating agent, via a series of chemical reactions in the emergency department. Although this theory has been endorsed by the Riverside Coroner's Office and published in the journal Forensic Science International, it is still a matter of debate in the scientific community. About 8.15 on the evening of February 19, 1994, Ramirez, suffering from severe heart palpitations, was brought into the emergency department of Riverside General Hospital by paramedics. She was extremely confused and was suffering from tachycardia and Cheney-Stokes respiration. The medical staff injected her with diazepam, mitazolam, and lorazepam to sedate her. When it became clear that Ramirez was responding poorly to treatment, the staff tried to defibrillate her heart. At that point, several people saw an oily sheen covering Ramirez's body, and some noticed a fruity, garlic-like odor that they thought was coming from her mouth. A registered nurse named Susan Kane attempted to draw blood from Ramirez's arm and noticed an ammonia-like smell coming from the tube. She passed the syringe to Julie Gorchinsky, 
a medical resident who noticed manila-colored particles floating in the blood. At this point, Kane fainted and was removed from the room. Shortly thereafter, Gorchinsky began to feel nauseated. Complaining that she was lightheaded, she left the trauma room and sat at a nurse's desk. A staff member asked her if she was okay, but before she could respond, she also fainted. Maureen Welch, a respiratory therapist who was assisting in the trauma room, was the third to pass out. The staff was then ordered to evacuate all emergency department patients to the parking lot outside the hospital. Overall, 23 people became ill and five were hospitalized. A skeleton crew stayed behind to stabilize Ramirez. At 8.50 p.m., after 45 minutes of CPR and defibrillation, Ramirez was pronounced dead from kidney failure related to her cancer. The county health department called in California's Department of Health and Human Services, which put two scientists, Drs. Anna Maria Osorio and Kirsten Waller, on the case. They interviewed 34 hospital staff who had been working in the emergency department on February 19th. Using a standardized questionnaire, Osorio and Waller found that the people who had developed severe symptoms, such as loss of consciousness, shortness of breath, and muscle spasms, tended to have certain things in common. Yeah, like they worked in a hospital emergency room. They were nurses or assistants to nurses. That's my thought. People who had worked within two feet of Ramirez and had handled her intravenous lines had been at high risk, but other factors that correlated with severe symptoms did not appear to match a scenario in which fumes had been released. The survey found that those afflicted tended to be women rather than men, and this is really sexist, and they all had normal blood tests after the exposure. They believe the hospital workers suffered from mass hysteria. Gorchinsky denied that she had been affected by mass hysteria and pointed to her own medical history as evidence. After the exposure, she spent two weeks in the intensive care unit with breathing problems. She developed hepatitis and avascular necrosis in her knees. Riverside Coroner's Office contacted Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory to investigate and Livermore Labs postulated that Ramirez had been using dimethyl sulfoxide, DMSO, a solvent used as a powerful degreaser as a home remedy for pain. Users of this substance report that it has a garlic-like taste. Sold in gel form at hardware stores, it could also explain the greasy appearance of Ramirez's body. The Livermore scientists theorized that the DMSO in Ramirez's system might have built up owing to urinary blockage caused by her kidney failure. Oxygen administered by the paramedics would have combined with the DMSO to form dimethyl sulfone, DMSO2, which is known to crystallize at room temperature, and crystals were observed in some of Ramirez's drawn blood. Electric shocks administered during emergency defibrillation could have then converted the DMSO2 into dimethyl sulfate, DMSO4, the highly toxic dimethyl ester of sulfuric acid, exposure to which could have caused some of the reported symptoms of the emergency department staff. The Livermore scientists postulated 
that the change in temperature of the blood drawn from the 98.6 of Ramirez's body to the 64 degrees Fahrenheit of the emergency department may have contributed to its conversion from DMSO2 into DMSO4, but this has not been confirmed. The possible chemical explanation for this incident by Patrick Grant of the Livermore Forensic Science Center is beginning to appear in basic forensic science textbooks. In one textbook, the authors state that although some weaknesses exist, the postulated scenario is, quote, the most scientific explanation to date, and that beyond this theory, no credible explanation has ever been offered for the strange case of Gloria Ramirez, unquote. Grant's conclusions and speculations about the incident were evaluated by professional forensic scientists, chemists, and toxicologists. They passed peer review in an accredited refereed journal and was published by Forensic Science International. The first paper was very technically detailed and contained two potential chemical reaction mechanisms that may possibly have formed dimethyl sulfate from dimethyl sulfoxide and dimethyl sulfone precursors. The second communication gave supplemental support for the postulated chemical scenario as well as insight into some of the sociology and vested interest inherent in the case. An alternative theory proposed by the New Times LA was that Gloria Ramirez could have been exposed to precursor chemicals such as methylamine used in the production of methamphetamine. Riverside County has been reported as one of the largest methamphetamine distribution points in the U.S. and as such, the theory posits that hospital workers involved in the production of methamphetamine were smuggling precursor chemicals in IV bags and that one could have been mistakenly given to Gloria Ramirez. Sounds like a stretch to me. The key element in support of this theory is that methamphetamine precursors have a distinctive ammonia smell. Forensic teams have looked extensively into Ramirez's death, but explanation after explanation has been ruled out. To this day, nobody has ever found out for certain what caused Ramirez to become literally toxic. In 1932, 32-year-old Lily Lindstrom was a sex worker living alone in the Stockholm neighborhood known as Atlas. When her friend and downstairs neighbor Minnie went a few days without seeing Lindstrom, Minnie decided to call the police. Officials entered the room to find Lindstrom's body lying face down on the bed. Her clothes were folded neatly on a nearby chair and she appeared to have died from blunt trauma to the head. What makes the case noteworthy is what was missing from the scene. Blood. Nearly all of Lindstrom's blood had been drained from her body. Police found traces of saliva on her face and neck. The latter could be chalked up to her line of work, but they also discovered a blood-stained ladle in her room, which police thought may have been used to drink her blood. Sound like a vampire to you? Maybe a toothless one. It certainly did to the press, who nicknamed the unknown assailant the Atlas Vampire. The identity of Lindstrom's murderer remains unknown.
Is it a bird? Is it a plane? Is it an alien? No, it's probably just a moth, and a phenomenon which has seemingly been left behind by the paranormal community, and with very good reason. In photographic and video recordings around the world, lines of light dashing across the sky would sometimes occur with no clear reason why. A common interpretation of these rods was, you guessed it, an incident of the paranormal, or tiny alien life forms. Isn't that adorable? In cryptozoology and ufology, rods, also known as skyfish, air rods, or solar entities, are elongated visual artifacts appearing in photographic images and video recordings. Some paranormal proponents claim them to be extraterrestrial life forms, extra-dimensional creatures, or just really small UFOs. Jose Escamilla is a spokesperson for the Rod Aliens, as he claimed to be the first to film them back in 1994. The location? Roswell, New Mexico, no less. This guy has gone on to lecture on the subject, as well as make more videos of the tiny aliens. So it must be true, right? Alas, this totally plausible theory wasn't paranormal. It was, well, way normal. Tongua Zingua Pharmaceutical Company in Jilin Province, China, thought Escamilla's claims were poppycock. With huge nets and surveillance cameras, they captured the spooky rods doing their thing. When they checked the nets, there weren't no aliens, just moths and other flying critters. The rods were actually motion blur, afterimage traces of bugs and wing beats caught on camera. It's an optical illusion and is more likely to occur in interlaced video where slower recording speed makes moths look like aliens. I was curious about those things when they came out, when they started becoming popular, and apparently somebody came out with an excuse, uh, not an excuse, an explanation for them, and they just basically dropped off the paranormal charts. A hand sticking from the trunk of an old beat-up car tooling down the interstate turned a routine Saturday shift into a once-in-a-lifetime story for one young reporter and a veteran photographer nearly 41 years ago. It became a life-saving event for Gary Collier, the man attached to the hand. It was the morning of May 5, 1979, when the scanner in the newsroom at the Birmingham News began squawking reports from motorists that they had seen a hand sticking from the trunk of a car. Mark Wynn, an intern reporter, and veteran photographer Jerry Ayers set out to see if they could solve the mystery. After a while, and just as the two had already given up hope of finding it, Wynn spotted the beat-up beige Dodge traveling northbound on Interstate 2059 in Inslee. Wynn was in the front passenger seat, and Ayers was driving. They followed the Dodge through traffic, moving northeast on the interstate. At one point, Wynn takes the wheel so Ayers can snap some photos of the Dodge and the hand sticking out through a crevice in the trunk. The Dodge exited at the airport boulevard off-ramp as the driver of the Dodge, a woman, apparently realized she was being followed. The driver then began weaving through a neighborhood. All the while, Wynn used the radio to tell their ever-changing location to on-duty editor Garland Reeves, 
who relayed the information to a Birmingham police dispatcher. Police arrived, stopped the car, and arrested three people. Joseph Finley, 27, of Morris, his uncle, Wilburn Finley, 49, of Bessemer, and the driver, Robin Green, 24, of Birmingham. They also freed Collier from the trunk. Collier said that he had met the three at a bar in Bessemer the night before. He said he was robbed of $350 from a disability check, was beaten and stabbed with a screwdriver, then forced into the trunk. As the three were driving around and he tried to fight to stay awake from the carbon monoxide, Collier said he was able to slip his hand through a gap in the rubber seal on the lip of the trunk and waved a motorist. During the 14 hours he was in the trunk, Collier said he could hear people inside the car talking about where to dump his body. I had done made my peace, Collier told Wynn at the time, or was trying to. After his rescue from the trunk, charges against Wilburn Finley were dismissed by a judge who found that he joined the other two after the robbery and after Collier had been put in the trunk. Court records, however, and I wonder why, do not show what happened to the charges against Joseph Finley and Robin Green. Hey, here's one that'll make you scratch your head and just wonder Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. Thou Valiant Thor lived as a stranger at the Pentagon for three years, interacting with President Eisenhower, Vice President Nixon, and Air Force military brass. Hmm, this could be one good reason why my dad absolutely detested Eisenhower. Dr. Frank Strange's killer name, what? Is best known today for his best-selling work, Stranger at the Pentagon, which was first published in 1967. His book captured the imagination and sparked one of the longest-running mythologies relating to the UFO phenomenon and hollow earth in his history. If his sensational story is true, as many people believe it is, then it strikes an entirely new perspective on the history of 20th century America. Dr. Strange's always struck rather a curious figure in UFO circles. He was a dedicated UFO hunter and a freelance private investigator who apparently never had any trouble accepting the veracity of extraterrestrial activity. At the same time, he was an evangelical Christian preacher and the founder of a group called the International Evangelism Crusades. It was this unusual combination of beliefs that marked Dr. Strange's out as the natural messenger for some very important otherworldly information. Dr. Strange's claimed that at some point in 1958, he came into the possession of a photograph of a space alien named Val Valiant Thor and his second in command, a female named Jill. This part has nothing to do with the story, but it reminds me of and sounds a bit like the Heaven's Gate leader, Marshall Applewhite, and his assistant, Bonnie Nettles, who occasionally went by the aliases Bo and Peep and Doe and T. Dr. Stranges showed off the image at UFO conferences and claimed that Val Thor and Jill were extraterrestrial beings from planet Venus. This behavior attracted the attention of the authorities and eventually Dr. Stranges was contacted by a Pentagon insider named Nancy Warren who told him that, astoundingly, 
Val himself had requested a personal meeting with the doctor. Naturally, Dr. Stranges was more than happy to accept the invitation and met with Valiant Thor. Val informed him that he and his three-person crew had arrived on March 16, 1957, in a town called Alexandria in Virginia. After Valiant Thor and Jill landed in Alexandria, they are said to have met with two police officers who quickly transferred the information they were telling them to the Pentagon. The extraterrestrial beings then would go on to meet with Neil McElroy, who was the Secretary of Defense at the time, and following that, President Eisenhower and Vice President Nixon. It is believed that for a significant period after this meeting, Val and his team met with the senior politicians and Air Force commanders on numerous occasions and gave them advice on policy and dealings with other extraterrestrial beings. According to Val Thor, there was a particular reason why he had chosen Dr. Strange's to meet with and tell his story to, and that reason was Dr. Strange's devout Christian faith. Val informed Dr. Strange's that the Bible was a representation of the truth, but that Jesus Christ was not a human being, but rather a space alien. He claimed that he had wanted to preach this news on earth, but that he had been dissuaded from doing so by the senior politicians of the day. However, Val told Dr. Stranges that this disappointment had not stopped him from continuing his mission to preach the galactic word of Jesus, which continues probably to the present day. So what do you think? You think the woman may have misused other chemicals and made herself sicker than she was and then made other people sick with it? Or was it just hysteria? I say there may have been some hysteria there, but there may have been some good reason for these people to get sick. The vampire? I don't know. They don't say anything about marks on the body. It just said it was that there was an injury on the back of this girl's head. And then, you know, she's almost bloodless. So... Could be she was killed somewhere else. The blood was drained out, and then she was found in her room. Happens on TV all the time. What about this Val, Valiant Thor? You think he was a real person? You think it was just something for this man to write a book about and make some money off of? I don't argue with him being a preacher because I'm licensed to the ministry also, and here I am talking about strange stories, ghost stories, and... Bigfoot and all that stuff. So I understand the, the the duality of believing, you know, faithfully in in Christianity and then also believing in stuff that may not go with Christianity. So I don't know. Well that's the show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. Be with me next week as we come back with another story or another group of stories for Terry's Mysterious Moments. I want to remind you that on Mondays, Aaron Hunter brings you Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast, which is listener stories that Aaron tells, mostly ghost stories. On Tuesdays, we have Aaron Frail with Aaron's Horror Show, where he reviews horror movies, different books, uh, things that he's written. Wednesdays, it's me, Terry's Mysterious Moments, with me, Terry from Texas, where we cover just about anything you can think of. We also have video productions on the first Friday of the month 
from Full Dark Productions, from The Witching Hour, and from Unexplained Cases. Also remember that you can go to your app store, whether you have an Apple or an Android, you can go to your app store, look for the RPA app. It's a black square with a blue eye right in the middle of it. You can't miss it. And you can download that app, install it into the device you listen to the programs on, and that way you will not have to go looking for the programs. They'll be right there. Do that. It'll be a lot easier for you to get to the stories. That's about it. I hope everybody has a good week. Thanks for being here. Bye-bye.